Hey everyone, it is Thursday, September 29th. I'm Mosh Wanunu and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There's a lot we're watching on this Thursday. We will begin with Hurricane Ian, which left catastrophic damage across Southwest Florida. The images were really stunning if you've been following the coverage the past 24 hours. But Ian is not done yet. It is currently making its way across the state. I'll have details on what to expect next. A new tactic for the victims of gun violence. Families who lost loved ones in the July 4th mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, have filed a lawsuit against gunmaker Smith & Wesson. The Iranian regime is taking its fight against protesters across the border in Iraq. We got new details this week about a new Alzheimer's drug that has shown major progress and a breakthrough. I'll have the details on that. In sports news, it appears LeBron James is getting into pickleball with a major, major investment. And I'll end with a personal message about a journalistic legend we lost this week. Bill Plant was one of my colleagues at CBS. Uh, I was very lucky to call him a friend. And I'll talk about his legacy at the end of today's podcast. But let's start with Hurricane Ian, which made landfall uh, early Wednesday afternoon. It is tied for the fifth strongest hurricane to ever make landfall in the U.S., the fourth strongest in Florida history. It was officially a Category 4, but it was really only one or two mile per hour short of being a Category 5 hurricane, the highest level. Fort Myers and the area around there in Southwest Florida really took the brunt of this. The storm surge was the big thing. If you've seen any of the videos I posted on Instagram or uh, any of the coverage you've seen of Hurricane Ian, you will note how catastrophic the surge was, the water coming from the Gulf of Mexico onto Western Florida. Western Florida is particularly vulnerable. Some areas saw storm surge of up to 15 feet or higher. That's twice or three times as high as many areas of Western Florida have ever seen. Western Florida is particularly vulnerable here because the Gulf of Mexico is less than 100 feet deep in areas, which makes it very easy for hurricanes, especially hurricanes as strong as Ian, to push water on shore. So when we're talking about storm surge, which in some areas was six feet, nine feet, 15 feet. Nine feet is about the first floor, the entire first floor of homes. In some places, people were seeing water onto their second floor. It was a major problem. What you saw on Wednesday as it came ashore is that because hurricanes go in a counterclockwise motion, it effectively pulled water out of Tampa Bay, which was north, and pulled it around counterclockwise and then pummeled the area around Fort Myers, uh, Cape Coral, etc., with tons and tons and tons of water. Forecasters had warned in recent days that storm surge would make this storm unsurvivable. There was a mandatory evacuation order for up to 2.5 million Floridians. It is unclear how many, though, didn't abide by the order. We saw a video on Wednesday of the Naples Fire Department, a station that was inundated by water. That's one of the reasons why authorities uh, are very serious about evacuation orders, because they know that even the first responders who have to stay behind, in some cases, will be unable to save people. I have been hearing from locals who say that they've heard from authorities not to call 911. We cannot come to you right now because the storm and the water is so high. We're gonna learn a lot more today on this Thursday about the damage. We haven't heard much communication and power is down, especially on the barrier islands, Sanibel, Captiva. It is unclear how many people stayed out there. So we'll begin to get a sense today of how many people are requiring rescue out there uh, and how many people actually ended up staying and trying to survive the storm out there. Florida authorities have been doing multiple press conferences, including Governor DeSantis. He says that he has 5,000 National Guard troops and 40,000 electrical workers on standby once the storm clears and heads north to be able to uh, save people, 
rescue people uh, and start to restore electricity. More than one and a half million Floridians, the number keeps going up, don't have power as of Wednesday night. This storm was so powerful that we even heard from hurricane hunters. These are the pilots who fly the planes into the hurricanes to get data uh, and inform the U.S. Air Force, the National Hurricane Center, of where hurricanes are going, how powerful they are. They're called hurricane hunters. They have done this for years and years and years. Several uh, reporters who flew with the hurricane hunters in the last couple of days say that they were even shaken up by the power of Hurricane Ian as they flew, they found that even the eye, which is supposed to be relatively calm, was dropping their plane sometimes a thousand feet at a time. So there's the whole cleanup and potential rescues in Southwest Florida. The storm continues to make its way across the state, but at a snail's pace, actually at about eight miles per hour, which for point of comparison is about a light jog. So Ian is taking a light jog across the state, but it is a massive storm and it's gonna dump a massive amount of rain. I've posted some of the maps on my Instagram feed, some areas north of Orlando could see upwards of two feet of rain. Same for the Space Coast and Daytona Beach. So watch out out there. The forecast right now is for Ian to head out into the Atlantic at some point on Friday and then make a second landfall into Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, with widespread rain then expected through Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia through the weekend into early next week. President Biden has spoken with Governor Ron DeSantis on the phone. There's a lot of coordination there, according to both sides here. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is ready with millions of liters of water, millions of meals. They, like the electrical workers and the National Guard, are just waiting, though, for things to get slightly safer and for roads to become passable for them to help uh, and bring the water, the meals, etc., to what is expected to be a population in the thousands or tens of thousands that is homeless after this storm. We're still only a few hours into Ian's landfall in Florida, but insurance companies and analysts are already trying to estimate the property damage from the storm. You've seen the images of homes floating away, boats floating away, uh, probably in the scope of tens of thousands of vehicles that have been flooded out from this, maybe more. Loretta Waters is a spokeswoman for the Insurance Information Institute. She said that many insurance modelers estimate that the damage here could be between $20 billion and $40 billion. A spokesperson for Citizens Property Insurance, that's a state-backed nonprofit insurance company, expects upwards of 200,000 claims. As a point of comparison, Hurricane Andrew, that was the Category 5 storm that many Floridians still talk about back from 1992. Ian is being compared to Andrew uh, in some respects here, given its size and scope. Andrew, back in 92, destroyed tens of thousands of homes in South Florida. This was in Southeast Florida and caused an estimated $15 billion in insurance losses. It turns out that 11 insurance companies would, would go insolvent because of Andrew. It remains to be seen what Ian does to the insurance industry when all is said and done. I'll continue to monitor details from Ian uh, on my Instagram feed throughout the day. So uh, please follow me over there at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. Okay, let's head abroad here where Iranian forces have taken their fight against protesters across the border into Iraq. For the fifth straight day, Iran bombed areas in northern Iraq in the Kurdistan region. Nine people were killed, 32 others, including children, were injured. Keep in mind, this is all due to the protests related to the death of Masa Amini. She happens to be a Kurd from northern Iran. The Kurds live across several countries, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. And the Iranians are blaming Kurds who live in Iraq for fomenting the protests in Iran. Now, as far as all the evidence is concerned, the protests in Iran have taken a life of their own. They don't have much to do with the Kurds in northern Iraq, but that hasn't stopped Iranian government authorities from launching drones and missile strikes uh, into multiple uh, areas in Iraqi Kurdistan. Iran here is essentially using the protests 
um, at home as an excuse to wage a brutal attack on Kurdish opposition groups up in northern Iraq. Though the protests continue across Iran in more than 80 cities, Iran continues to block the internet in the country, so it is difficult to get out uh, details, though I continue to see and follow the accounts of several opposition groups that continue to showcase that they are getting out on the streets on a daily and nightly basis, usually between 4 p.m. and midnight every day, uh, honking horns, uh, calling for the death of the dictator of Iran. A reminder that the Iranian Islamic regime, the authoritarian regime, has been in power for 43 years in Iran. And while the death of Masa Amini by Iranian authorities who say that she wasn't abiding by wardrobe guidelines started off small, the protests have now grown to the point where it's no longer just about women's rights in the country, but about bringing down the regime. Let's head up to Russia, where the American embassy put out a warning for all Americans who still happen to be in Russia to get out of the country as soon as possible. Now, the U.S. has been warning since back in January, February, for any Americans who uh, live in Russia who or who are in Russia to leave. In particular, right now, the focus is on dual citizens or Americans who happen to live in Russia with a Russian spouse. The U.S. embassy in Moscow issued a security alert overnight urging American citizens to leave the country. The alert comes in the wake of Putin's order for partial mobilization of Russian men to fight in the war in Ukraine. The embassy warns Americans that Russia may refuse to acknowledge any dual nationals U.S. citizenship, deny them access to the U.S. embassy and U.S. consulate, prevent their departure from Russia. And so what they're saying is get to the airport and get out of the country so you won't be drafted into Putin's operation in Ukraine. The warning from the U.S. Embassy comes as we've learned that 200,000 Russians have already left the country in the last week. Those numbers come to us from a number of border countries um, around Russia that have been counting the number of Russian men who have been crossing the border. Meanwhile, I told you about that attack yesterday on the major gas pipelines that run between Russia and Europe called the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. We learned via reports on Wednesday that the U.S. actually warned European allies over the summer, including Germany, that those pipelines could face threat or could even be attacked. That's according to people familiar with the intelligence that was passed along to the Europeans. Now, while the Europeans got those warnings, they were vague. It was not clear from the warnings who might be responsible for any attacks on the pipelines or when they might occur, but the warnings took place nonetheless. The EU continues to say that those attacks, this was three explosions along two pipelines, uh, were a deliberate attack. Seismologists report shaking in that area of the Baltic Sea um, as the explosions took place, and those leaks might take weeks, months, even longer uh, to repair. A reminder that until recently, Russia was a key provider of gas to Europe. About 40% of natural gas, mainly used to heat homes and businesses, came from Russia. Russia has started to mess around with that over the course of the past few months. As Putin knows, he has leverage over Europe. That number decreased from 40% down to 15%, and now is down to zero from the Nord Stream pipelines that go from Russia uh, into Northern Europe. Okay, a bit of hopeful news now for anyone who knows anyone who's ever suffered from Alzheimer's disease. A breakthrough announcement by two pharmaceutical companies, their Biogen and Esai, they said this week that they have tested a drug that they're developing for Alzheimer's that has actually, in a late-stage trial, slowed the rate of cognitive decline. It's been a long time since we've gotten a reliable new drug in the fight against Alzheimer's disease. The strong results will boost the drug's chances of winning FDA approval. It offers a renewed hope for a class of Alzheimer's drugs that have, until recently, failed or generated pretty mixed results. The trial was for a new drug called Lecanemab. Cognitive decline in a group of volunteers who received the drug was reduced by 27% compared with the group who received a placebo during the clinical trial. They enrolled 1,800 participants with mild cognitive impairment 
or mild Alzheimer's disease for the purposes of the study. Again, the new medication called Lecanemab, and they're hoping to get approval for that soon. The data offers the pharma company Biogen a second chance after the company's disastrous rollout of another Alzheimer's drug that was called Agilem. That previous medication had one approval last year, despite little evidence that it could slow cognitive decline and has received only sharply limited coverage by Medicare and has proved to be a commercial failure so far. So let's keep fingers crossed for this new drug. Okay, a new tactic here for survivors of mass shootings. The families and loved ones of the six people killed and dozens injured in the Highland Park, Illinois, July 4th shooting have announced a lawsuit against gunmaker Smith & Wesson. It accuses Smith & Wesson of deliberately marketing its weapons to violence-prone young men through social media and ads reminiscent of video games. In a series of lawsuits filed in Lake County, Illinois, including the survivors and relatives of those killed, they said Smith & Wesson, quote, knowingly sought to place its weapons in the hands of disturbed young men by targeting and exploiting the risk-seeking and often troubling desires of these consumers. They called the July 4th mass shooting preventable and predictable. The suits claim that the suspect, Robert Crimo III, was ready to go to war just as Smith & Wesson told him he could. They accuse the gunmaker of deceptive and unfair marketing and also target others, including Crimo's father, in this lawsuit. Smith & Wesson has so far not commented on the lawsuit. A reminder that that shooting in Highland Park took place in a July 4th parade. Six people were killed, more than 36 wounded as a gunman opened fire on a crowd from a rooftop. Wednesday's lawsuits allege that Smith & Wesson knowingly advertised its weapons, including the M&P model rifle used by Crimo, to appeal to militaristic fantasies of troubled young men. We will monitor this lawsuit as it unfolds in court. Okay, a bit of sports news here. It appears LeBron James, as he uh, looks at his final season in the NBA, continues to uh, really invest in a variety of things. James and longtime business partner Maverick Carter are now headlining a new ownership group in Major League Pickleball. If you haven't heard about pickleball by now, I'd be shocked. The pickleball people love talking about pickleball. No insult to you pickleball lovers out there. The LeBron James group, by the way, involves a number of other investors, including NBA champions Draymond Green and Kevin Love. Major League Pickleball is the first of its kind professional team league in the U.S. The league's expansion from 12 to 16 teams opened up the opportunity for LeBron James and his group to invest in the league. The league's expansion from 12 to 16 teams opened up the opportunity for LeBron James and his group to invest. For what it's worth, pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the country. Uh, for those of you who haven't played it or haven't heard of it yet, it is effectively a hybrid of tennis, ping pong, and badminton. It actually dates back to the 1960s, but it has taken off in a crazy way in recent years. There were about 5 million pickleball players in the U.S. last year. That is a 40% increase in just the last two years. All right, before we go today, I want to remember a couple people who passed this week. We learned Wednesday night that rapper Coolio has died at the age of 59. According to a report from TMZ, Coolio's friend found him lying on a bathroom floor before emergency crews arrived on the scene. You might remember Coolio, who was born Artist Ivy Jr. He became a household name after his hit single back in the 90s, Gangsta's Paradise. While an official cause of death has yet to be released for the 59-year-old rapper and actor, TMZ reports that cardiac arrest may have played a factor in Coolio's death. And one more person I want to remember on this podcast on a completely different wavelength, and this is someone who I had a personal relationship with, I want to pay tribute on this podcast to journalistic legend Bill Plant, who died at the age of 84 this week. Plant was a longtime White House correspondent for several decades. He actually worked at CBS News as a correspondent for 52 years and spent several decades covering the White House. He was hired back in the Cronkite era, covered every election since 1968, the civil rights movement, several tours in Vietnam, as well as was a fixture at the White Houses of Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, 
and Barack Obama. The cause of death was respiratory failure, according to his wife, Robin. I had the opportunity to work with Bill during my eight years at CBS News and am very fortunate uh, and lucky to have been able to learn from him, work with him, and even more lucky to have been able to call him a friend. I came in as a 29-year-old senior producer at CBS. I was managing DC coverage for the CBS Morning Show uh, and encountered Bill very early on. He joked that his bosses kept getting younger. Bill was in his uh, early to mid-70s at that time. But regardless of the age difference and the fact that he was like, I can't believe sometimes I'm taking order from 20-somethings, he was an incredible teacher, a great journalist, a great writer, a great reporter, really understood how to ask a great question. For him, asking a great question, especially of a president, which he had to do many, many times throughout his career, was all about keeping the question tight and pointed, using as few words as possible. But much more importantly, beyond the journalism, he was an all-around nice guy, a gentleman in a town where people just aren't that friendly all the time. He showed people the ropes. It didn't matter whether you're the intern or whether you were a new reporter. And having worked in the CBS DC Bureau for decades, he had amazing stories from his time there through the years, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and from his trips around the world with presidents, Cold War summits, and of course, uh, covering Vietnam through several stints over there. Bill was also an incredible wine aficionado, uh, bringing back great wines from around the world, really understanding them. When you were at a restaurant with him, you just handed him the wine menu and he understood. And he was a guy that never wanted to retire. When I uh, got to CBS, he was already in his early 70s and had no inkling about retiring. I recall that he actually took a vacation uh, during one of the first couple of years I was there. It was a bike trip uh, around Spain. On that bike trip, he fell and broke a rib. During uh, the x-ray that he took, they found out that he had lung cancer. He ended up surviving that battle with uh, lung cancer. He was an incredible fighter. He showed up every day at work with a suit and tie and pocket square, really old school. He was always ready to make TV, tell a story, write a great script to help explain what was happening in Washington to the rest of America. At his retirement party back in 2016, he said that journalists must continue our mission to speak truth to power, challenge leaders, no matter what platform we're reporting on. I hope I can make Bill proud. I will miss Bill very much. I know journalism will miss him. I know many people in Washington will miss him. They don't make him like you anymore, Bill. With that, I want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please follow or subscribe to the show and whatever app you're listening to us on to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Please take a moment and review the show. It helps us continue to grow the program. You can also sign up for the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And if you don't follow me on Instagram by now, please, a reminder to do that. You can head over to Instagram and follow me at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone for our Friday edition of the podcast tomorrow.